almost 50 years ago, there were many universities in America. God came to my university. In my university, there were many dormitories. God came to my dormitory. In my dormitory, there were many rooms. God came to my room. And in my room, there were two men. And God came to me. And almost 50 years later, I want to praise the sovereign, effectual, loving, eternal, redeeming, keeping grace of God in my life. Thanks be to God for his goodness. It is a privilege and a pleasure to be with you. And all I want you to remember is that your church's great need is your own holy example, your clear teaching, your fervent prayer, and your sacrificial love. How do we influence people? By our life, by our preaching, by our prayer, and by our love, the kind of love we heard about last night. So we've been talking about the necessity of holiness in the life of the church. And we introduced the subject uh, by uh, reminding you of three things. Number one, the basic definition of holiness. Number two, it's necessity in the life of the preacher. And then if we're going to talk about holiness in the church, we must talk about what the church is so we could have an accurate understanding of where we want to go. The church of God is, you know, is a gathered group of baptized believers that are covenanted together under the oversight of ordained leaders for the purposes of advancing the kingdom of God on earth. How do they advance the kingdom of God on earth? Number one, by establishing the worship of God. Number two, by teaching the people of God. Number three, by propagating the gospel of God. Number four, by observing the ordinances of God. And number five, by exercising the loving discipline of God. That is the nature, that is the purpose, and that is the ministry of the church of God. So we briefly introduced, and our brother Alan expanded on, the necessity and importance of purity in our worship so that it might be acceptable to God, that it might be pleasing to God, and that it might be glorifying to God. And yesterday we talked about the necessity of purity, that is accuracy and clarity in our preaching so that the people of God would be built up in the word of God and grow into the image of Jesus Christ and that the church would be protected and preserved from error. 
Now I have two more points I want to bring out today. The time is pressed, so I'll simply survey this first one and move quickly uh, to the next one. Listen carefully. The church must be pure in its fellowship and in its discipline. It must be pure in its fellowship and in its discipline. If we would know the reality of what our brother was speaking about last night concerning the practical expressions of true love in the context of the church, there must be purity of fellowship and unity of heart. Now, our brother Harshit will be speaking on the necessity and importance of unity in the life of the church later this afternoon, so we don't want to look at that in detail. But I want to remind you of several things, and that is the church must be holy in its personal fellowship and its exercise of church discipline in order to, listen carefully, secure the abiding presence of the Spirit of God. To secure the abiding presence of the Spirit of God to secure, number two, the active participation of all the people of God, and number three, to promote an atmosphere of peace and unity. So let me just review very quickly three things about fellowship. We want our fellowship to be pure and to be holy. I'll just mention these things and reference some verses that you can write down and look at later. You're already familiar with these things, but you are a leader in the church. You have the privilege and responsibility by your example, by your teaching, by your love, and by your prayer to lead the people of God into a holy fellowship that they might enjoy communion with him and with one another. First of all, regarding fellowship, what is the basis? What is the basis or the foundation of our fellowship? It is simply this, a shared union with Jesus Christ. A shared union with Jesus Christ. First John chapter 1, you are familiar with the verse, John said, these things we proclaim to you in order that you might have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. What is the basis of our fellowship one with another? We all share a spiritual union with one head and as we are united to him, we are united to one another, and we share as a foundational union with Jesus Christ, true fellowship. Number two, what is the nature? What is the nature of biblical fellowship? Its basis or ground is our union with Christ. What is the nature of our spiritual fellowship? It is just that. It is a spiritual communion of heart and soul. It is a spiritual communion of heart and of soul. Write this verse down, Acts chapter 2 and verse 42. And they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to the breaking of bread 
and to prayer. Write this verse down, Acts chapter 4, verse 32. And the believers were all together, and they were of one heart, and they were of one soul. That is, they shared the common life of union and communion with Jesus Christ and with one another. One other verse, uh, Romans chapter 12 and verse 10, devote yourselves to one another in brotherly love. That means to give yourself over to one another in the bonds of affection in the family of Christ as brothers and sisters joined together to the living head and indwelt by the Spirit of God. That is the nature of true fellowship, sharing the life of Christ one with another rooted in our union with Christ. And as we heard last night, number three, what are the practical expressions? What are the expressions of true biblical fellowship? You search it out yourself because it's mentioned 30 or 35 times in the New Testament, one another, one another, one another. Now we got over 200 preachers here. Let's come up with at least 10 of those one another's very quickly. Love one another. Serve one another. Accept one another. Help one another. Encourage one another. Pray for one another. Forgive one another. Suffer with one another. Pray for one another. I think you're getting the idea. You need to teach your people these are the practical expressions of true fellowship. And you ought to take them through these truths and encourage them not only as to teach them, but to give them some practical ways and suggestions whereby they might, in union with Jesus Christ and in spiritual communion with one another, be able to express their affection and share the life of Christ. True fellowship is not coming in the church and saying, how are you doing, brother? You're doing okay. How's the family? How are the children? Bye-bye, I'll see you next week. That's not true fellowship. True fellowship is heart-to-heart, soul-to-soul, eyeball-to-eyeball, spirit-to-spirit, learning how to talk with one another. And I've been to many places in the world, and I found many men do not know how to talk at a significant level to other men. They're like a bunch of little roosters. You know what a rooster is? You've seen a couple of roosters fighting with one another. They get around one another and they do this and they do this and all of a sudden they do, then they jump back down and they'll do this again and they jump back down. You go to a lot of preachers meetings, it's like that. Or you see a bunch of dogs on the street. What do they do? They got their hair back on their, their hair on the back was all up and they're like this and they're smelling one another. Then they're going to determine whether they're going to wag their tail or they're going to jump on the next dog. Listen carefully. We need to have humility. We need to have love. We need to have a holy security in Jesus Christ. We're not comparing ourselves to one another. We're not trying to be better than one another. We're not saying this person has this, but I don't have that. 
This person doesn't have that, I have this. We are sharing life together with an open, honest humility over time. That is true fellowship. And if you are going to see true, pure fellowship in the life of the body of Christ, you must lead the way. If the people see you come in the door Sunday morning and preach and say amen and go out the door as soon as you get out of the pulpit and they don't see you again, you're just passing by them, then they will not know and experience true fellowship. You must lead the way by way of example. Well, we won't expand those points, but listen carefully. Your privilege is to seek to lead the church because the Bible says in Ephesians 4, let all wrath and let all anger and let all bitterness and let all sin be put away from you and do not grieve the Holy Spirit. We grieve the Holy Spirit by unconfessed sin in the life of the church. But when we're seeking to cultivate purity in the church and purity in the fellowship, then we will know the abiding presence of the Spirit of God, and we will know something of heaven on earth. And as you read in Colossians chapter 3, that extended passage in regards to the peace of Christ, the love of Christ, the patience of Christ, the forbearance of Christ, the affection of Christ, one for another in the context of the church, then you will know the abiding presence of the Spirit of the living God. You will know the active participation of all of the people of God, and you will know an atmosphere of peace and unity in the church. Brethren, the Bible says, strive to preserve the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace, Ephesians chapter 4. Listen carefully, preceding that verse in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1, 2, and 3, there is the exhortation to humility, to gentleness, to forbearance, and to patience. And if you don't have those characteristics, you will not have unity. And after that exhortation to unity, there is that statement, there is one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father over all. So sandwiching, if you will, that exhortation to unity is the necessity of holy character of life and the importance of like-mindedness in doctrine. And so when people have character of life and a biblical doctrine upon which they agree, the possibilities and probability of fellowship and unity and true love and biblical peace are real in the life of the church. So brethren, I encourage you to pursue by your example and by your teaching the reality of holiness in the context of your fellowship one with another. Why is it necessary to secure the abiding presence of the Spirit of God? Now the other afternoon in our breakout session, we made a brief mention of the necessity of the church to purify itself by the exercise of church discipline, to purify itself by the exercise of church discipline. 
And you remember, those of you that were here, I mentioned three things regarding church discipline. Let me review them quickly again. This is very important. Sadly, there are times when the church must purify itself, not just by the ordinary exhortations one toward another, but sadly at times because of the necessity of exercising biblically directed church discipline. And you remember we mentioned three things, and let me review them very quickly. Number one, we talked about the reasons for church discipline, the reasons for church discipline. And we mentioned three. Number one, proven immorality. First uh, Corinthians chapter 5, verses 1 to 13. You are familiar uh, with that passage. I encourage you to review it again because you as leaders have the responsibility to guide and lead your church in the practice of church discipline so that it might purify itself. Proven immorality. 1 Corinthians 5, verses 1 to 13. Uh, number two, clear error or heresy of teaching. Clear error or heresy of teaching. Uh, Romans chapter 16 and verse 17. You need to look at that verse, as well as Titus chapter 3 and verse 10. Now, we do not have time to look at these verses, but they make it very clear to keep your eye out for those that cause hindrances and divisions among us and stay aloof from them. Titus chapter 3, verse 10. Mark those that cause divisions among you. Reject a divisive man, a factious man. And the meaning of the word is he's divisive on account of teaching wrong doctrine. So you as leaders have the responsibility to lead the church in the exercise of church discipline so that it might keep itself Pure. Paul said, clean out, 1 Corinthians chapter 5, the old leaven that you might be a pure lump before the Lord. And number three, another reason for church discipline is consistent disorder, consistent unruliness, consistently being out of bounds. And you know the verses in Second Thessalonians chapter Three, 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, I believe, verses 7 and following. Uh, that is, there are those that are walking disorderly, out of line, not according, Paul said, to the traditions that you have received such from us. I urge you then to rebuke such a one and admonish him on account of being disorderly. So you have the responsibility as pastors and leaders in the church to teach clearly the word of God so that the people of God would grow, that the church of God would be protected from error. And when there's persistent, unconfessed, unrepentant sin in the context of the church, either as a result of uh, obvious immorality, clear error or heresy, or persistent disorder, 
you have the great challenging responsibility to exercise church discipline, and that includes even toward the leaders in the church. First Timothy chapter 5, write that verse down from verses 17 and following. We are to not receive an accusation against a leader except on the basis of two or three witnesses. And notice what he says, those who continue in sin rebuke in the presence of all so that the rest will be fearful of sinning. So the reasons for discipline, or at least these. Now, number two, the manner, the manner of church discipline. We talked about the reasons. Now, the manner of church discipline. How does church discipline unfold? Let me give you two things. Number one, it unfolds from private to public, from private to public. And number two, from less severe to more severe. And you remember the verses in Matthew 18? If your brother sins against you, now this is a relational problem, go to your brother yourself and rebuke him. That is a private matter. And if he listens to you, you have won your brother. If he doesn't listen to you, take someone else with you and go to him. And if he will not listen to two or to three, then go and tell it to the church. And if he will not listen to the church, let him be unto you as a Gentile or as a tax gatherer. You see the process of from private to public. So when you exercise church discipline, you just don't get an ax and chop somebody's head off uh, in a moment simply because they've done something. There is a process of sensitivity according to the word of God that the church purifies itself. This is a responsibility of all the people of God to admonish and exhort one another but if there are conflicts in the church, either due to sin, division, bad theology, or disagreement, and it cannot be solved by the body of Christ itself, then you have the responsibility to lead the church into the practice of purifying the church with church discipline. And so it goes from private to public and from that which is less severe Second Thessalonians 3, do not reject him, Paul said, but admonish him as a brother. There are times in which if someone is disorderly, he may need a private, and if it goes on and on, a public rebuke, but if he is repentant with a broken attitude, you do not reject him as an enemy, but you admonish him as a brother. So it goes from a less severe to a most severe. Paul said this, remove the wicked man from among you. There was a time in which the man caught in immorality, you remember the story, 1 Corinthians 5, did not repent. Paul said, I, uh, in the not with you presently, but in spirit, I deliver such a one uh, over to Satan for the destruction of his flesh that his spirit might be saved in the day of the Lord. There are times when you move from a less severe to a more severe practice of public scandalous sin demands, if unrepentant, public rebuke and censor, and at times removal. 
Now, this is a very sensitive and important subject, but we're talking about the church being holy, holy in its fellowship one with another, and then holy in the exercise of its church discipline. And some of the saddest, most difficult circumstances I've ever experienced in my time as a pastor have been this issue of trying to help the church understand and exercise its responsibility to purify itself in the expression of church discipline. Number three, what is the purpose of church discipline? We talked about its reasons. We talked about its manner. And now, very simply, what is the purpose of church discipline? Let me mention three things just by a quick survey. Number one, the purpose is the restoration of a brother to restore a brother, 2 Corinthians chapter 2. You'll remember that brother apparently being finally rebuked by the Corinthians, repented, and Paul said, restore such a one, restore him, do not reject him, that he not suffer overmuch. There is the necessity of restoring brethren. Do not reject them as enemies, but admonish them as brethren so that they might be restored. So the goal is the restoration of the individual. Number two, the goal is the purity of the church. 1 Corinthians 5, purge uh, the leaven from among you that you might be a pure lump. And then obviously number three, the glory of God. To him be the glory in Christ Jesus and in the church, Christ gave himself for the church that he might wash her by the water of the word, that she might be holy and blameless without spot or wrinkle or any such thing. So just very briefly, uh, that is a word concerning the necessity of the church developing holiness in its personal fellowship and in its practice of church discipline. And I know there are many questions regarding this matter, especially as it relates to how do you deal with preachers or pastors or evangelists that have fallen into sin? What do you do with them? There is the tendency. I was over in East China about 15 years ago, and I was... Uh, meeting with a large number of preachers from the underground unregistered house church. And I was teaching them uh, on the subject of personal purity and holiness. And the leaders came to me and said, we've got a problem in our network of churches. It's not a big problem, but we are concerned about it. We've got a young man in the church. He said he's the most gifted, intelligent educated man we've got. When he comes to preach, everybody gathers together. When he doesn't preach, everyone does not come. And so he's the most important preacher we've got. They said there's only one problem. He's sleeping with the young girls in the church. And they said, what do we do? And so I tried to open the Word of God and explain the qualifications and requirements for leaders, the necessity of the church being pure, 
the process of discipline regarding someone, an obvious sin that all knew about, they said, we can't do that. He's too valuable. We've got to have him as our preacher. Now listen carefully. When you make decisions in your church based upon results or consequences rather than based upon principle, you will deny the Lord, you will lose the presence of the Spirit of God, and you will grieve the Holy Spirit, and the church will begin to sink downward because gift, education, knowledge, utterance is not the most important thing. It is purity of life in the preacher. And if there is consistent, obvious, ongoing sin in the life of the church generally, or the preachers specifically, we have the challenging but biblical responsibility personally as leaders are first of all one toward another but you as a leader going to the people of God opening the word of God and speaking the mind of God concerning their sin and then if there's not repentance you slowly begin with patience and love the process of discipline this is a very challenging and difficult reality but to restore the brother for the purity of the church and ultimately the glory of God is our goal. And I want to move to a fourth area. In other words, we're talking about why must the church be holy? And we just briefly mentioned the church must be holy in its worship uh, because it pleases God, is acceptable to God, and it glorifies God. Then we mentioned number two, why must the church be holy in its preaching in order to mature the saints and to protect the church from error? And we just mentioned here briefly why the church must be holy in its fellowship and its discipline to secure the abiding presence of the Spirit of God. Now let me mention here, one last point in which the church must be holy. Listen carefully. The church must be holy in its witness to the world. You remember we said the church primarily advances the kingdom of God in three areas, right? Up in the establishment of the worship of God, in, in the edification and teaching of the people of God, and then, of course, out and the propagation are sending out the gospel of God. And the church must be holy in its witness to the world. Let me give you several reasons. Number one, why must the church be holy? Because godly character and good works are the foundation of our witness. Now, it is not the sole content of our witness, but godly character, good works, and a holy example of a foundation for our witness to open a door for the gospel through our lives and through our churches. Matthew and chapter 5, you know the verses. Let your light shine before men so that they may see your good works and glorify your Father that is in heaven. You are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. 
If we're going to have an effective witness in the world, the first foundational reality is the purity of our life and example. Now, in addition to Matthew 5, let's look at several other passages. Write this verse down in Ephesians chapter 6, a well-known passage concerning the spiritual war we are in and the armor that is necessary for us to wear. And of course, one of those pieces of the armor relates to the feet. And what is it? Having your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Now the feet are the parts of the body that produce motion and take us somewhere. And the Bible says, how beautiful are the feet, Romans 10, that bring glad tidings of good things, quoting Isaiah. And Paul says that everyone in the church, not just the preacher, should have his feet equipped with the preparation of the gospel of peace. What does that mean? That means he has been taught and instructed. The idea of equipment, here's a soldier, he's coming and he's been trained and prepared as a young man. He's gone through basic training. Then they give him his boots, they give him his clothes, they cut off all of his hair, they give him his gun, they give him his weapons and they begin to train him. So in the same way, Paul is saying all Christians in the church and your responsibility is to make sure that all Christians understand they ought to have the ability and the equipment to be able to simply communicate the gospel of Jesus Christ as they walk in this world. How does the church have a witness in the world? Number one, by the ordinary witness of all believers. The ordinary witness of all believers. Matthew chapter 5, let your light shine before men. Ephesians chapter 6, have your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. And your responsibility is to instruct people as to how to be sensitive to every situation, how to be ready and prepared to speak, how to give their testimony, how to give a simple gospel presentation, how to be alert to any circumstance with family or friends or business acquaintances whereby they might communicate the gospel. They have to have their feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Look in the book of Philippians. Write this verse down very quickly. We're talking about the church needing to be holy in its witness to the world. And the first way the church advances the gospel is by the ordinary witness of all believers, the light of their life, the expression of good works, their ability and sensitivity to be able to communicate the gospel in any circumstance. Philippians chapter 2, notice verse 14. Do all things without grumbling or disputing. Why? So that you will prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent children of God among above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast or holding forth the word of life so that in the day of Christ I will have reason to glory because I did not run in vain or toil in vain. The Bible says 
We are to live in the midst of a wicked and perverted generation. And you live in such a context. People in America live in such a context. This country has been blinded and darkened by demonically infested idolatry for centuries. On top of that, you've got the poison and pollution of the West that is now coming into India and has come in through the TV, through social media, through your phones. And I've recently heard, was this correct, that they've legalized gay marriages? Listen carefully. For centuries, idolatry has blinded the minds of Indians. On the top of that, you've got the infection and the pollution and the cancer of the wretchedness of the West that has come into India, and you are in the middle of a wicked and perverted and a crooked generation, that you are not to compromise or be controlled as we've been hearing by these rulers and principalities and powers and authorities that undergird idolatry and promote immorality now in India. You are to keep yourself blameless and innocent in the midst of a wicked and perverted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. You are not to take your light and put it under a bushel. You are to hold it forth in your family, in your neighborhood, in your job, with your money, in all of your relationships, in the context of the church, and of your witness to the world. We are to be holy and blameless because if we're hypocritical and if we are inconsistent, the first thing people will do is jump on the top of the poor hypocritical witness of the church as an excuse for them to continue in idolatry and darkness. Therefore, the first foundational necessity and effective witness to the world, according to the Apostle Paul, is to be holy and to be blameless. And therefore, he says in Colossians, look at it quickly. Colossians in chapter 4, he repeats himself to some degree in verse 5. We're talking about the believer must be holy. The church must be holy in its witness to the world. And how does it do that? Number one, by the ordinary witness of all believers, by their life and by their speech in the middle of a wicked world. Colossians 4 and verse 5, conduct yourselves with wisdom toward those that are outside, making the most of the opportunity. Let your speech always be with grace, though seasoned with salt, so that you might know how you should respond to each Person. That is, we have to have wisdom and sensitivity and a blameless and innocent example when we are living in the world. In other words, your family, your children, your wife, the way you handle your money, the way you relate in business, the way you do your work is to be like a shining light against the darkness of all the corruption and all the lies and all their impurities of this world and this sinful society, not only in India, but all over the world. And we need wisdom to know how to keep and conduct ourselves, he said, toward those that are outside, being sensitive to every opportunity. And when we speak, let it be seasoned 
as it were with salt, so that we may know how to give an answer. And of course, in so saying that, one other verse, write it down, 1 Peter. We're talking about why the church must be holy in its witness. Because godly character and good works are the foundation of a witness. First Peter, I believe, and it's in chapter 2, first of all, where Peter says this. Verse 5, you as living stones being built up as a spiritual house, a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God. That is our worship upward toward God. But look at verse 9. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. Why? So that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. We are to worship God and we are to speak of God to the world and proclaim the excellencies of the living God in Jesus Christ by the power of the Spirit as the only solution to the darkness, idolatry, and perversion that is around us. Therefore, chapter 3 and the well-known verse 15, look at it, 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 15. Let's start at verse 14, who is there, who, verse 13, to harm you if you prove zealous for what is good? For even if you suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed. Do not be troubled by their intimidation and do not be troubled in fear, but sanctify Christ as Lord in your heart. That is set apart Jesus as the supreme Lord and his word and his will as your guide and his spirit as your help and strength, always being ready to give a defense or an explanation to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. And Jesus said somewhere, when they bring you before the authorities, do not be concerned about what you should say or what you should speak, because in that hour, the Spirit of God will enable you to speak. And recently, three months ago, I knew that reality as I was very quickly yanked out of a meeting like this, thrown into a car, taken down to the jail and interrogated to 12 or 14 hours by wave after wave of people that were seeking to get information out of me concerning all the Christians I knew all over that vast country. And by the grace of God, he, I was enabled uh, by the Spirit of God to give an answer that was appropriate and accurate in that situation and was able to give testimony, especially once they told me, you've got to leave the country in two days. I said, well, I've got nothing to lose here now. So I pulled out all my gospel guns and cannons, and I just started firing and shooting every way I could to everyone that asked a reason for the hope that was within me. Listen carefully. The church must be holy in its witness to the world because godly character, holy example, and good works are the foundation for effective witness. That's not all. We're talking about life. We follow that up with speech. 
feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Our people know how to give a testimony and how to share the grace of God in their life, and they know the basic truths of the gospel. Number two, they hold forth in their hand the word of life. They bring it forth into darkness. And number three, they are able and equipped to be able to give an answer and a defense and an explanation for the hope that is within them. So how does the church advance the gospel? Number one, by the ordinary witness of all believers. You understand what we're saying? And your responsibility and privilege is to lead by example and to teach and encourage and equip the people of God. You tell them, all right, you're a soldier, here's your gun. Here's your boots. Here's your helmet. Here's your responsibility. And you tell them this is what you're to do in this situation and in this situation. And you pray for them and you encourage them and you instruct them and you prepare them and you equip them so that they are able to give an explanation coming forth from a life that is so radically different from anything and anyone around them that they cannot help but see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. And in certain cases, when they ask questions, you need to be able and willing to pull out the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, and to apply it to that particular situation. That is the ordinary witness of all believers. All right, let me move on to a second point, and let me do so by asking you a question. Are all Christians missionaries? Are all Christians preachers? Now let's think biblically here. Listen carefully. All Christians are to be witnesses. That's the testimony of the word of God, some of the verses we've just looked at. But in the strictest biblical sense of the word, what is a missionary? A missionary, listen carefully, if we trace through the pattern in the early church, a missionary is somebody that has been called and gifted by God, and he's been commissioned and sent forth through the local church and the power of the Holy Spirit to go to unevangelized and unreached areas, and he does five things. What are they? He preaches the gospel, he makes disciples, he establishes churches, he trains men, and he appoints elders. If you follow the apostolic pattern in the life of the Apostle Paul, and the words of Scripture concerning who it is that we send, we need to understand that while all Christians are to be witnesses in their ordinary life, not all Christians are called to be formal preachers or missionaries. So it would be more biblically accurate to say all Christians are to be witnesses in that general sense, yes, 
They're in the mission of God, if you will, and they're trying to advance the kingdom of God. But there is another group of people. We're talking about not just the ordinary witness of all believers sharing and communicating the gospel in and through their life, but the special ministry of called, sent, gifted, commissioned men who are ordained by the church, sent out by the Spirit of God into unestablished, unevangelized areas, and they do those five things. Romans, excuse me, Acts chapter 14, you'll notice when Paul went out to preach and he returned, what did he say he did? Acts chapter 14, look at it very quickly. We need to be very clear on this. While we encourage all Christians and we instruct all Christians to be a witness right where they are. Acts 14. You remember in verse 19, the apostle Paul had been stoned. He had been stoned. Acts 14, verse 19, they stoned Paul and drug him out of the city. Well, he got right back up and went back into the same city. Most preachers would go the other way. But he did go back into the city. But then it says the next day, verse 20, he went with Barnabas to Derb. And then what did he do? Notice verse 21. After they had preached the gospel to that city and made many disciples, they returned to Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, telling them through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. And verse 23, notice what it says, and when they had appointed elders for them in every church, having prayed with them with fasting, they commended them to the Lord in whom they had believed. Now look back at chapter 13 chapter 13 and verses 1 and following. You well know the story, the church at Antioch. Now, this is very important because you have a responsibility and a privilege as a leader in the church to encourage all the people of God to understand their privilege and their responsibility by life and by speech to communicate the gospel everywhere they go as God opens doors and gives opportunities. But also you have the responsibility to be sensitive to the Spirit of God and observe and recognize and test and examine and approve and appoint and send out men that are gifted and called and anointed by God to go into new areas and do these five things. What does an evangelist, what does a missionary, what does a church planter do? Well, he does many things, but he does at least those five things. He preaches the gospel. He makes disciples. He establishes churches. He strengthens the brethren. He doesn't just leave them. He prepares and trains men, 2 Timothy 2, 2, and then he appoints elders. That is the responsibility of the church planter and the missionary, and in many cases he goes out and does that, but he himself does not become the formal pastor permanently long-term in that church. Now, in this particular context, many of you say that we have planted churches. 
Now, we hear this a lot in America. There's a big movement on planting churches. There's a big movement on disciple-making. There's a big movement upon establishing churches among unreached peoples, and we are all for that. For 40-plus years, I've given my life to that reality. But listen carefully. When you compromise the message and when you compromise the method and when you send out unqualified and ungifted men you just mass produce false conversions. You gather them together in little groups and you've got a man and a woman and barely a grandfather, two dogs and a pig, and that is a church. And then you leave them and you go and do the next thing in another town and then you come back and tell people, we planted a thousand churches in Uttar Pradesh in six months. That is not biblical missions. Listen carefully. Don't listen to a lot of the mission strategy that's coming out of the West right now. God's strategy is a man with his Bible and the Spirit of God that is called by God, that has been tested and equipped in the church. He is sufficiently prepared. He is anointed by the Spirit of God, recognized by the church of God, ordained and sent out by the Spirit of God, and he has experience to go out and do those five things. The Lord didn't say in Antioch, set aside Billy and Sue. He said, set aside Paul and Barnabas, proven men who over time had shown their ability and their anointing to be able to clearly communicate the gospel. They were sent out from the church being called and commissioned by God through the Holy Spirit, and they went to unestablished places, and they preached the gospel, made disciples, established churches, trained men, and appointed elders. And this rapid church planting movement, this rapidly advancing disciples, these four fills strategies, all of these things that have come out of America and sound so impressive and have produced so many, quote, churches have not been able to clearly sustain and mature those churches so that they become biblical churches. So all they've got is a little bunch of groups scattered here and there, maybe not even baptized believers. They don't know anything about covenanting together. They don't have ordained leadership. They don't know where they're going. And six months later or a year later, you can, couldn't find them anywhere. Now, if you go to America out on the West Coast, there's some beautiful forest, and they have these massive trees called redwoods, and some of them are really, really big. They're 200 meters high. They're 1,000 to 1,500 years old, and it took them a long time to grow, and over time, they dropped their seeds, and their seeds sent out little shoots, and all around these massive redwoods, are these trees in various stages of growth. It is strong, the roots are deep, the foundation is strong, and its influence is wide, and it's producing other trees. But around the bottom of these little trees are mushrooms. You know what a mushroom is? You know a mushroom. A mushroom comes up in one night. Shallow roots, weak base, flat top, 
Two days later, what happens? It falls over. Now listen carefully. That's the difference between a biblical church and what you hear coming out of the West now. If you've got a foreigner and he's teaching you that you can multiply your churches just like that so quickly, and we've got these rapid church planting movements and these insider movements, they call them, and this rapidly advancing disciples, and we're going to plant a thousand churches in your state in six months. Listen carefully. Don't listen to them. Don't listen to them. Shut your ears to foreigners. And if a foreigner will not associate with you and he will not fellowship with you and he will not come along beside you in the context of your church and work with you behind the scenes as a servant, uh, then you don't want to work with him. But many of the mission agencies in America are telling their missionaries when they come over from their, care, their organizations, don't work with the Indian church. Stay away from the Indian church. Don't fellowship with the Indian church. You've got somebody like that, then you don't want him in your church. Listen carefully. We must have holy, holy men, message, and methods in regards to our church planting endeavors. Outside of revival, church planting is not an overnight thing. Paul went back again, and he strengthened, and he instructed, and he remained in certain places. So people that come and tell you that we've planted 300 churches right around your city, and you don't even know it, and you can't even see it, and you don't even know where they are, don't listen to them. Don't listen to them. You remain holy and biblical in your methodology. That is, you pray and seek God, you equip and encourage the people of God to be witnesses, and then you look for proven, faithful, experienced men that are called by God, tested in the church, able to teach, anointed with the Spirit of God, and then after a while, you lay your hands upon them and you send them out and you tell him your responsibility is by your life and by your teaching and by your example and by your love to preach the gospel, to gather a small group of disciples, to begin to teach them the word of God, and then to lead them to an understanding of what is a true church as to its ingredients, as to its makeup, and as to its purpose then, God willing, you are praying that God would raise up someone that you could train or you could lead if you're not going to be the permanent pastor, that that man could take that particular church. Twenty-plus years ago, we went to China. I was 50 years old. And my wife and I began to witness young students or to in our neighborhood. God gathered together a small group of people, about six or eight, that were wonderfully converted by the grace of God over time. And then others began to gather together because there was a foreigner there. They call them long noses in China. There was a long nose there. And so people wanted to come see the long nose. But lo and behold, in coming to see the long nose, more of them got converted. So after about a year and a half, there was about 40 people there that were young or new 
Christians. And yet I recognized they were coming, many of them still, to see the long nose. And so I was concerned and burdened about that. And I was seeking to follow this pattern. And so I prayed, and God raised up two men. And I poured my life into these men. And I sought to disciple these men. And I sought to give my heart to these men, my theology, my burden from the Word of God. And there came a time when I told them, look, here in, a, here in about two months, I'm here no more. I'm gone. You two men will preach and lead. I will be behind the scenes. I'll give you counsel with your sermon preparation, counsel with your problems in the church, and I will help you in that regard. And they were scared to death, but I was there to help them. And God brought them forth, and God encouraged them, and God blessed them, and God used them. And that church, up until recently, had two or 300 people in it. was going on, but the government has since come down and cracked on the church, and they're scattered into small groups, uh, and their leaders are under tremendous pressure. But that was a church plant, according to the Word of God. But I realize I'm not getting any younger, and if I just do this again one time, I'll not be multiplying my efforts and effects. So I determined that I wouldn't do that anymore, that I would begin to work behind the scenes and give my heart and life to other young evangelists and church planters and leaders in existing churches or men that wanted to start new churches. So I've been working behind the scenes for 20 years to counsel, to help, to encourage, to instruct, and to direct young men in their church planning and pastoring efforts. But listen carefully. The church must be holy in its witness to the world with godly character, with good works, and a good example so their light and life will lead the way for them to speak the word of God as we pray for open doors, open mouths, and open hearts. That is our prayer as we witness and as we pray that in the context of the church, God would raise up young, maturing, gifted, anointed men that are called by God, proven in the church, that are sent out by the church under the power of the Spirit of God, laying your hands upon them, and they know what they're doing. They're going out to preach the gospel to make disciples, to establish biblical churches, and hopefully to train men and to appoint elders. And if you want to see the blessing of God, if you want to know the power of God, then you need to pray the Spirit of God would encourage all the people of God to be witnesses, you leading the way, and then also instructing and in teaching, seeing young men raised up praying the Lord of the harvest would raise up these men from the church and send them out into this sinful, dark, idolatrous world for the glory of God. The church must be holy in its worship, in its teaching, in its fellowship, in its discipline, and its witness. May God do that in you and through you and your churches for his glory. Amen.